Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Alex, good to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks very much for having me. Great, great. Uh, Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. My guest today is Alex Leonardi, the CEO and co-founder of Vectorshift, which is a developer of a no-code platform intended to help uh, developers build and deploy generative AI workflows. Alex, explain to an eight-year-old, what does this mean? What does Vectorshift do and how it works? Yeah, so Vectorshift basically tries to extend the audience who can actually work with and build their own custom AI like workflows to people who are not just, you know, like hardcore developers, because building these sort of AI workflows requires a lot of integration with the actual large language model providers, databases, integrations with other data sources you might be working with. And building all of those things out oftentimes can be a challenge, especially if you're trying to build it on infrastructure that scales to more production use cases. So we're trying to make it very easy for people to go on, take existing solutions, modify them, customize them, and then be able to run them for whatever task they they see fit. If we pick a use case today and we want to use Vectorshift, give us an example. How would the customer journey look like? Yeah, so I think the use cases sort of differ based on the client and also the stage the clients are in. So like for, you know, let's say a small to medium business, Usually the use cases can be something like, you know, uh, generating like custom emails for like personalized outreach, for example, or taking documents that you may have just like received and being able to quickly summarize them or generate reports in a very specific format that you've seen before using those documents. Actually, a lot of our uh, go-to-market motion so far has actually been more on the enterprise side, so larger companies. And those use cases tend to be a bit more complicated. So like, for example, with one of our very large enterprise clients where we're working on like automating the responses to these proposals that come in, asking them to fill out, you know, like 200 plus questions about their company, about their product, the legal stuff. And we're actually connecting into all of their data sources. So that with like a press of a button and like just a bit of context information in the actual proposal that they got sent, it'll automatically generate the response to all of their questions. And that's normally a process that takes them like weeks we turn it into one that takes hours. So, you know, like I said, it's a very flexible platform that lets you do a lot of different things. Amazing. Walk us through the early thought process on how did you identify that this is a pain point and then how did you go out and prove it? I know you've just finalized your uh, Y Combinator demo day. So you've been through that process. Walk us through how you thought around it. Uh, so my co-founder and I, Albert, have been thinking about this space for a while now. I actually, while I was in college, I did a double major in statistics and computer science, did a concurrent master's in AI machine learning. So I've been thinking about applications of more AI type technologies to business for a while now. I actually went to work at Blackstone, which is a financial institution, specifically to try and figure out how to apply these sorts of technologies to more financial use cases. So I've been thinking about it for a while. And same with Albert, after you know he studied statistics in college, ended up going to McKinsey, and focused his latter last year in McKinsey was focused very heavily on like generative AI deployments within these companies. And the truth is, when we talk about these sorts of things, like the main thing we identified was that 
like generative AI is a whole paradigm is a very flexible paradigm. And oftentimes right now it's getting used for like really vertical solutions, like very specific use cases, which is good. It does very well at it. But fundamentally, it's not like a vertical specific solution. Like you can use the same large language model for a very large number of use cases and it will do very well. So basically the, the way that we identified using the, like creating a no-code platform, a more horizontal approach to generative AI rather than a vertical one is that we think that Generative AI has the flexibility to do very well as a horizontal solution. And this is something we identified pre-Y Combinator. Uh, we were lucky enough that when we joined Y Combinator, we started working on this. We did see pretty quick demand from like upmarket clients, which were the people we were working, uh, targeting, primarily because Albert and I both have like experience working with more upmarket clients. So we just kept building. And then eventually we also launched the public version of the platform, which has also seen pretty good demand. So I think it's just very generally, like there is demand to try and access these solutions. It's a little obfuscated if you're not super technical to be able to work with these things really well. So we just want to reduce the barrier of entry, basically. Amazing. And if we go back to your early days, do you have currently any customers that are paying you or you're still in proof of concept mode? No, we do have. So we have several customers right now on the upmarket who are working with. I won't share the names just because we're under contract with them. But like, yeah, we have roughly six like upper mid market to large enterprise customers between like, let's say, you know, like tens of millions of revenue per year to several billions of revenue per year, primarily, like I said, on the larger enterprise side. And then we have a decent, I think we have roughly 600 users on our public platform now with a few of them paying. Many of those users are still on our free tier, just playing around with things, but a good portion of them are paying now as well. This is great and uh, good luck growing even further. But if we go back to your enterprise sales uh, motion, because this is a longer sales cycle, how did you approach it? How did you convince enterprises to use your platform early on? So Albert actually leads our our go-to-market motion. I do much of the technical work right now and the fundraising. But effectively, the way Albert has approached this is we both have experience working in like with large enterprises, him in particular at McKinsey, like his deployments have been going into larger companies and figuring out how to help make things more efficient, you know, how to help people do their jobs more effectively, et cetera. So we actually started primarily targeting sales use cases. Now all our pilots are not entirely sales, but a large portion of them are because Albert has done a lot of work within the sales vertical. So we went in with sort of knowledge of what sorts of problems these salespeople are facing And effectively, instead of trying to sell them a no-code generative AI solution, we tried to sell them problems, like solutions to their sales problems. And in particular, we told them we'd be doing it through generative AI. We'd be doing it through a flexible platform. And I think this helps enterprises solve several of their like pain points. One is that these are actual problems they're currently facing. It's not that they have to come up with a problem of like, oh, what can generative AI solve and how can we like apply it? Like these are actual issues they face. But that's also coupled with the fact that many of these enterprises do have significant like incentive to try and incorporate generative AI into their workflows, you know, both from management, from shareholders, et cetera. Like people see this as the direction the world is going. And like a lot of these larger companies are facing pressure to figure out how they can stay with the times and, and incorporate this into their processes. I think given that combination of we have a solution that one, you know, we can help them build into something that directly addresses what issues they're currently facing, and two, can scale well into solving several of their issues and becoming a, a provider of generative AI solutions that you know rapidly can get them to different use cases as time goes on, I think it's become an easier sell. That being said, you know it does still take time. So Albert basically from week like two of Y Combinator, which is now like two and a half months ago, has been working, you know, talking to VPs, directors, 
the individual like salespeople within enterprises to generate like buy-in for the solution at all levels. And over time, the, if you can get enough people in an organization to be interested by the solution, we found that you can push it through. This is great. If you go back to this strategy specifically, how did he find those leads and how did he convince them to reply to him? Because this is the most challenging part where you're maybe cold yep. emailing them, doing a cold outreach or warm introduction. Is there a specific framework that you guys have used that has been successful for increasing the response rate? So there's a few people who we've spoken through through warm intros. I mean, Albert and I both have pretty like robust networks within enterprises, but it's actually a minority of the people we're working with right now have been through intros. So I'd say there's like a few different methods that we've seen. One is like a large portion of it just comes from like cold outreach that's been refined through like A-B testing of actual like emails to see what gets people interested. This has also been useful talking to other people within like Y Combinator who have been doing this to see what sorts of emails work for them. But also Albert and I, you know, previously grew this like, consulting business in in college to like, you know, a little over a million dollars in annual revenue, working primarily through cold outreach, once again, to larger companies. So we had some experience going in in terms of like how we did that, and how that was run that we applied to this, which once again, is just a matter of like, what sorts of emails do people respond to? What cadence do you set? Like, it's very important to make sure your emails are like in a cadence, not individual emails, because people very rarely respond. Well, not very rarely, but the number of people who respond to the first email is smaller than the number of people who will respond if you send them a chain of emails reminding them, right? So we've set that up. And then a good portion also comes from like, you know, reaching out to alumni networks of things we've been a part of. So our college alumni network, McKinsey's alumni network, et cetera. These oftentimes have people in more senior positions that can help us introduce to other people within the organization. And then ultimately, the, you know, it comes down to, are you selling something they actually want to determine whether or not you actually make it through? But, you know, it's a good way to get in the door. What has been the most challenging part of this process? Uh, The sales process or the process of running the startup overall? The sales process. Yeah. So I think part of it is that a lot of people within more target market we're working with are like not super familiar with how generative AI works. I think it's, you know, as you become more senior and the executives are forced to think more about the state of the future, like people start to recognize this. But there's a lot of people, I think, who still don't fully understand the capabilities that generative AI like holds. And especially I think like, I think it's also wrong to just limit your like the understanding of the capabilities of generative AI to like what you've seen on like, let's say chat GPT. Because you know, oftentimes people are like, when we tell them about generative AI, they're like, yeah, we use chat GPT, it's like a neat trick, but it's not really useful for us. But the truth is chat GPT is, is a chat bot built on like singular calls to these large language models and some clever memory tricks to let it keep the previous conversation history. But oftentimes that's not like the optimal approach to doing some more of these complicated tasks. Like you can get a lot more sort of complexity out of the solutions that you generate by combining the large language models with other data sources, by chaining them together, by creating more complicated graphs of like connections basically to let like encode more analytical reasoning into the workflow you're building. And that expands very drastically like the types of things you can do. And early on, it was sort of like, I think we had a lot of pushback in the sense of like, yeah, but you know, I don't think ChatGPT could do this. So therefore I don't believe your solution could do this. But there's like a pretty big dichotomy between what ChatGPT like singular calls to language models can do and what you can do by encoding a more complicated process, which we've been trying to explain. Once again, it's like, it can get a little difficult sometimes, but I think the hype behind trying to get generative AI into enterprises helped us carry through that a little bit because people generally are like, I think most people can extrapolate beyond it. It's just something we've noticed. This is great uh, stuff. Thank you for sharing it, Alex. So why Combinator's principle is do things that don't scale. 
Yes. What is something that you've done? That doesn't scale? Yeah, I mean, I actually think like our go-to-market motion right now is like not super scalable in hopefully the Y Combinator way. But basically like we initially for our enterprise clients are helping are actually like directly working with them to build out the initial use cases for them. So like we are like the platform VectorShift provides a series of core components, but those core components on their own are like one, probably not at the moment, like enough to cover all the different enterprise use cases that we're working with. So we're constantly adding new ones to the website and two, like, you know, there's like integrations to the specific data sources. There's the actual creation of the framework of each individual pipeline. These are non-trivial tasks that frankly, if we just gave them to the enterprise as is, they would not be able to do it. So Albert and I are actually going through and implementing these one by one for our initial enterprise customers. And, you know, eventually we do have a long-term that does scale through this and that like every solution we create for an enterprise, if we can isolate out any proprietary information and the data sources and just leave ourselves with a core logic engine, we can repackage that core logic engine for other enterprise use cases doing the same thing. For example, for this like report generation for this one enterprise client we're working with, it's like a use case we've now heard across like 80 plus percent of salespeople we've spoken to as being like a major pain point. So, you know, if we can isolate out that core logic, we can then significantly increase the rate at which we can implement it for other clients. At the same time right now, it is us effectively doing pseudo consulting work for each of these clients using our platform, which is not super scalable. But, you know, it it gets people in the door and it it makes it a much more compelling value proposition for people at the beginning. Thank you for sharing this, Alex. There's two ways you can approach maybe early on your the client uh, attracting it into your product. One is you pitch them and then they pay for a proof of concept or you pitch them you take their problem, you create a proof of concept, and then you sell them your, your uh, license, let's say, or implementation fee. Which one are you for? And what are the pros and cons? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, the, the, our approach has been we're doing like uh, pilots with implementation fees associated that then they have a choice at the end to, whether to convert. And if they convert, we also like put in like an annual contract. And then there's the recurring revenue associated with that. That's the way we currently work. And I'm assuming the other one that you're speaking about is, I just want to make sure I'm getting this right, like basically starting with a contract and like showing them the demo, getting them to like buy the actual product and then seeing like whether they like it or not. Is that what you're referring to with that first one? Essentially, you're pitching them an, your idea and then you say, give me a problem that you have and I'll show you how my platform would solve it for yeah. a free, for free, like, like a proof of concept and then they would commit to a contract. Yeah, yeah. So it... We do a hybrid of this. I think there are benefits to both things that you just stated, which is why we do a hybrid, which is we actually, when we're on, we're on the sales call, we're at a point with the platform where it actually does a, a decent number of things out of the box. So, and we have like a few solutions created out of the box. Usually now at this point, when Albert goes to talk to people, he'll ask them like, you know, what are some of the problems you have? And he'll actually run the things that we have out of the box that are pretty like in the direction of, of doing that. And usually like, if you can show people a demo that like shows them how your platform would solve something, even if it doesn't directly like show the solution exactly yet, I think people directionally get the idea and get more excited. So I think that's the benefit of showing people on the call being like, hey, this is sort of what it looks like for free, I guess, how we'd solve your problem and then get people to actually buy it. We do like we show people sort of how it would approach it. And then we move into like a pilot period, which is like, you know, paid, et cetera. And then they get the decision at the end whether to convert or not. The benefit of obviously doing something free throughout is that like you get the final solution in their hands, uh, like more more likely, you know, it's more likely someone will want to do a pilot for free than for a paid uh, amount of money. And if your solution is truly good, then they'll buy it. 
But I find like oftentimes with these earlier stage startups, like it's unlikely that we're like a three month old startup now. It's unlikely that these solutions are going to be like perfect oftentimes. So it's useful to have at least some implementation fee to get people invested in like helping you out. Because if you don't get people to pay you for something, it's likely they will be less invested in helping you. And for us to help make these solutions like closer to perfect, uh, we want to make sure there's very active engagement with the pilot partner to like help us out with you know, if we have any questions, if we need more access to data, etc. Um, which is why we've opted for the more paid route. What's the best advice you got from Y Combinator? Uh, there have got a lot of advice from Y Combinator and a lot of it is, is pretty good. I'd say like one thing, or well, obviously the do things that don't scale is, is great advice, but you know, we've already covered that. Uh, another thing that actually I think has been helpful is uh, Y Combinator really pushes you to launch early, which is interesting because for our business in particular, it was like a bit weird to launch because... Um, you know, we're, you know, enterprise for sales motion, oftentimes people like sort of lock these behind more demo type platforms, etc. So people don't really see what's going on. But I think the advice to like get something out there and to launch has been quite helpful. Because one thing we found is one, it, it gets us to work faster, because we have a like, we sort of had an internal deadline for like, mid August in our head for this is when we like need to get the platform out. We like got there like a week earlier. So um, and the reason for that is like now we actually have like a product that sort of in itself works we can use to demo etc but we also now since we have launched and even though like our enterprise motion is like our primary go-to-market motion right now we have a lot of like organic users uh from the bottom up and that's been very helpful in helping our platform just become more user friendly which is good when you're selling into these enterprises like it's not necessary oftentimes enterprise software is kind of difficult to work with but if it is user friendly i think it improves your odds of people actually wanting to work with it and increases your pilot conversion rates it increases the odds that people actually go in and use the platform self-serve uh, which is great because it reduces the amount of time we have to spend on implementation so the, the launch early advice for us has been very helpful i can see that if you're not running an enterprise motion it would be even more helpful uh, just because getting that user feedback is extremely valuable if you're selling directly to your users through a bottom-up motion what advice do you have for people who want to join Y Combinator on increasing their chances to be accepted? Anything that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, I'm trying to think. So one thing I'll, I'll note is like Y Combinator doesn't necessarily take people who are who have like traction, let's say. Like so it's it's not really about like getting revenue or having already built something. Like if you do, it's like not a downside. Like there's they Y Combinator accepts plenty of people with traction, etc. But I think the most important thing that why Combinator looks for is like people who they think are like willing to work very hard, who have really thought through their problem space and are able to think through new problem spaces very quickly. So like, that's why a lot of the Y Combinator interview expects like really short answers that are like very quickly delivered because they just want to test like, have you thought through things? And if you, they send you or if they ask you something you haven't thought through, are you able to respond to it very quickly? The other thing I'll note is like the co-founder relationship is very important for Y Combinator. So like, my co-founder and I have known each other for over like five years now, uh, and we've done a lot of things together and we've worked together before, et cetera. And Y Combinator takes big bets on like co-founders who like know each other and have done good, like cool things together, because ultimately like when you're doing a startup, you know, it's like a multi-year experience and the number one cause of death in early years is breakups between co-founders or co-founders just giving up. So finding someone who can like motivate you and who works well with you and who you enjoy spending time with is like a very big plus. And luckily, like we have that. So we're optimistic in that regard. This is great advice. Thank you for sharing it, uh, Alex. What's a principle that you live by that has served you well in your journey? Mm, principle that I live by. I have a few like core guiding principles. 
I mean, one is that like my perspective in, in life is to very much try and maximize the the like the good I do and the impact I leave by the time it's, you know, by the time like I get there throughout the course of my life. I think a lot of that has driven me to work pretty hard. It's like very motivating to know that like when you're actually building your own company, like you can take the direct decisions that you want to like sort of achieve your goal in life. And I think for a startup in particular, it's like, it's very helpful because I really liked my previous job, just to be clear. I enjoyed the team. I think the work was was interesting, but it's different when you're in a startup and you feel like you have full autonomy over your decisions and you have like ownership over your decisions. So if you actually make like, changes or if you like uh, build products that people are using etc you feel like a lot more sense of like connection to what you've done and that for me for someone who's like very interested in seeing like my impact reflected on like what it does for the world is like been very compelling it helps with determination obviously it's like running a startup is a very um i can get pretty pretty like challenging in terms of the amount of work you have to do the amount of like sacrifices you have to make more personally in order to focus on it, et cetera. And just being very motivated to continue working on it for like a, a greater reason than just like you want to do a startup is I think been very helpful. Amazing, Alex. Thank you for sharing this. What's next for you and the startup? We have some pilots to deliver on. We have some more product to build. We're actually going to start hiring quite soon. Been working with some very smart individuals uh, on like, you know, various bases. And we want to see if we can now start expanding the full core team because so far it's just been Albert and I doing most of the work. And like I, like I said, have been running the technical aspect of things. Albert's been doing the go-to-market. Uh, since we are like, you know, a AI slash tech startup, we do want more technical talent on board. So we're looking to hire some engineers. We actually just posted our, our first job uh, posting on the Y Combinator work at a startup board. So hopefully we'll get someone within the next few months to, to start helping out there. And then I think we're not going to look to blitz scale right now. Like we need to you know, make sure that we're building up something people want to use Y Combinator's words. We have good early indications, but now it's just going to be a, some process of like narrowing down to make sure like one, we're delivering on the early indications of interest we've seen and two, continuing to build this out into something that's like useful for people. Amazing, Alex. Thank you for uh, stopping by and, and sharing your story. We wish you the best of luck. How can people reach you? So you can reach me at my email, which is alex at vectorshift.ai. I'm happy to talk if anyone has any questions. But yeah, no, thanks very much for having me. This is great. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.